Hello, welcome to this episode of Talking Ghana. Talking Ghana is a podcast devoted to the left, right, and center of Ghana's politics. On Talking Ghana, we believe that everyone is entitled to an unbiased and coherent perspective on anything Ghanaian. For each episode, we offer our unusually biased but highly opinionated take on the key issues and themes shaping Ghanaian politics. My name is Nelson Opong, an academic and social critic based at the University of Edinburgh. Also a reluctant co-host and passionate contributor to this debate. Uh, welcome to another episode of Talking Ghana. Um, we uh, are convening again uh, following the Supreme Court's verdict um, where it's uh, rejected by unanimous decision um, the petition that was filed by the uh, candidate of the National Democratic Congress, uh, ex-president Mahama. Uh, over the week, we've also had interesting events uh, uh, at the level of the parliamentary approval of new ministers. We've also had the president give the State of the uh, Nation address. And then there was the budget statement and so we have a lot to digest and reflect on for for this episode. Uh, and as usual, I've um, uh, assembled the the crew. Uh, so I have Oliver, uh, Oten, Papa. Uh, uh, Mame was not able to join us, but uh, she will join us for the next episode. Uh, and so, guys, welcome. And and since Oliver, you've had a lot to say elsewhere about the Supreme Court verdict. So I think it's in order to give you the platform to take, get your take on the verdict. And especially, I'm, I'm interested in the point that you just made about whether the Supreme Court views its role now as protecting constitutional liberties and constitutional rights. Um, do you think that per the verdict, the Supreme Court has sent that signal uh, and Ghanaians could be rest assured that the Supreme Court uh, will protect their constitutional liberties following the verdict that we got. But so, feel, free, feel free to look elsewhere. Yeah. So, I mean, I think generally, when you when you see how the whole election petition has been, has, has been conducted and the, the decision now, it is fair to say that you come out of it with a sense that there have been two losers in the whole, in, in, the, in the election. And for me, the first loser is the Electoral Commission, and the second is the Supreme Court itself. I think that the for, for the Electoral Commission, looking at how it bundled the, the, the 2020 elections, if anything at all, this was its opportunity to seize and and allow people to you know to, to, to gain some sense of confidence in itself, explain away the mistakes it's made, and give a sense that you know ultimately we're still in control and this should not shake. You know, faith in the foundations of what the electoral process is. It failed to do that. It continued to see these whole elections in very narrow terms. And a decision not to take the stand and not to, to, to lead a defense was for it only a, a litigation strategy rather than a public institution which has a role to play in how 
you know, elections are conducted in the country. So for which reason, I think, when you look at the whole commentary about it, I, I think that this image has been really shaken uh, through this. I suppose it didn't even help that when you, that that Jean Mensa was coming to, to court, clad with uh, military men surrounding her. It, it reinforced this image of somebody who was not really ready to open itself up for scrutiny. Uh, the second one has been the, the Supreme Court itself and the way in which it has handled the petition. And ultimately, I suppose the, the decision now that it has now given, which starting first with the way in which it has handled the election petition, I suppose there are several matters that have come before it in which a lot of people felt that its approach to determining the issues were narrowing the issues in play and the stakes at play in terms of what the, the role that it has to play in, in being intuitively aware that elections are much more than just uh, who is the victor and who is the loser, but also the signals we send into how the elections should be conducted, uh, who should be prepared to answer for how elections are conducted, and who we should hold accountable. I think generally it lost it lost the ground in, in, in those sense. Uh, the petition, the, the judgment itself, you know, I, I, my, my sense is that when you ask a person a question and the person reformulates the question and answers the question for themselves, it is very difficult to challenge the answer the person has given you on the, on the person's own terms. And, and what I mean by this is, if considering that the, the court decided that it was only going to consider questions of quantitative analysis as most important in this discussion, on those basis, it does reason out the judgment in a way in which it is difficult at the end of the day to challenge it and say quantitatively uh, the numbers or the, the figures you are dealing with would upset the election. And I, I know that there's, there are issues, and I'm hoping because Othain has been the biggest advocate on this matter, so I'll allow him to intervene on this. But I do know that there are even questions about whether or not it's the numbers it refers to, it does so faithfully, and, and it reflects the record that was before it. So, you know, when you take up the judgment, you have it referring to, to Annex E or Annex C, Annex D. But because these annexes are not within the body of the, of the decision, you have to go elsewhere to really refer when the court is quoting something else. Is it repeating mistakes which have been challenged or is it making certain assumptions which you shouldn't have made? And one of the, for me, one of the biggest points that has been raised, I know, I don't, I don't know whether you mentioned this, but Mohammed's uh, Mohammed's speech after the verdict itself, where it said that certain statements that have been made by the witnesses on the stand had to be taken out of out of context and things like that. And when he first said it, I thought he wasn't being he wasn't necessarily being fed to the Supreme Court. But when you go into the, the, the judgment itself and you see the way in which statements made on the stand were picked apart and then the court choosing what it wants from it, you do realize there's a bit of credence to it. And somebody had asked me whether or not this is something which is consistent or peculiar to this case. And I think that so many times as lawyers, when we pick up decisions by courts, including the Supreme Court, you see the Supreme Court make statements like this witness is not credible or this statement says this and next and for which reason I hold this. And we've considered it fair for a long time. The reason being that it is only on very few occasions that you have the entire process open to the public where everybody is following it. And so if the Supreme Court or a court mischaracterizes the person's statement or takes it out of context, there's better basis to, to argue this and to see this clearly when, as, a, as an external person who is looking at him. And I think that various times with a CADUKTA statements on the stand, 
this happened a lot. But I mean, generally, I mean, I think I haven't deferred much of my position that in the way in which the petitioners sought to set out the issues and the way they framed their case, it was a case they were going to lose even before they stepped, they stepped into court. So the decision is not surprising in that regard. But in an unsurprising decision, it's perhaps the way that there's better opportunity to reflect more bro broadly on, on the electoral process, which I think you failed to do. So I, I can see you are striking a much sober tone from what you you said in the in the uh, previous episode on this, um, and 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 that means that Otin, um, uh, you are sort of having this common ground with uh, with Oliver in terms of, and I must emphasize, in terms of using this election petition as an opportunity to hold public institutions to account so based on that what what is your take on the verdict or thing I, I mean essentially the point oliver has made i i, I still think that this petition was quite a, a much simple petition much more simple petition than the 2012 petition that we realized uh, the petitioner came to court challenging certain statements that the declaration, let, let me be more specific, that was made by the elect Electoral Commission on the 9th of December. I totally agree with the with a with a with a with a supreme call that it is it is indeed possible to make errors and when errors are made they have to be corrected but in what way do you correct those errors and in a, 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 a are we just to accept, accept that for a matter like this and as serious as a, as going to what Ghanaians actually voted at the polls on, on 7 December. You can just simply say, oh, this was an error, and so we have corrected it, and so, so be it. I think that I've heard the Supreme Court say, oh, uh, this could have been addressed at, at a different forum, i.e. the High Court. But, but then if you went to the High Court and uh, the High Court made certain determination, and that determination then go to the to the to the to the accuracy of the election results. What do you do? It is only the Supreme Court that can make pronouncement on that. Bottom line, I, I still think that it was a very simple process that would have been embarrassing to the election, electoral, the chair of the election, electoral commission, but then would have given us the chance to clarify what really went wrong. And then once that cl clarity has been given, then it was incumbent on the uh, petitioner then to say, oh, even though you've clarified it, I have, I still think that you are wrong. And so if, if you then say that, then you've got to bring all, everything based on which you are saying the Electoral Commission's clarification is wrong. 
But as we have it now, the Electoral Commission, I still do not know today what was the total valid vote cast in, in the elections of, uh, of uh, uh, December 7. I still do not know, reading from the, 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 the judgment, I still do not know what was the correct total valid vote cast in the light of everything that was brought to court. And if you've not been able to determine that, what is then the basis for any declaration that you make? I think that based on everything that we saw, I still stand by my, my view, it should never be opened to the electoral commission, the chair of the electoral commission, that you, she would determine not to speak to issues when the issue had been legitimately raised in court under the guise of certain procedure that, okay, uh, you can compel a, a person to, 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 to uh, enter into the boat and give witness, especially in, in this particular case, especially in the light of all the other proceedings that preceded the trial and that actually were also initiated during trial to try and get to the electoral commission to speak to the errors that was made and clarify the errors. And then uh, all those things were, were rejected. My view of the matter is that the Supreme Court would have still, could have still raised the conclusions and the decision it did. But it would have been simpler. It would have given the opportunity, embarrassing as it may be, to clarify the issues. And then once clarified, if the NDC then insisted, still insisted that we are not bringing anything to courts, any pink sheets to court as people have in, insisted over the time, then we would have would have seen that this case is no case, but they were really hanging on some, there you can call it innocuous errors. Yeah. That's one point. So bottom line, it should never be open to the uh, uh, electoral commission to do that. The other bigger issue is, and this is something, conversation that in, I've informally had with Papa. What is the role of the Supreme Court in, 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 in an election petition? Uh, we, we've been told that because the, the, the petitioner did not come to court with his own so-called, less for the want of better use of words, put evidence of what was the valid vote cast. It was not open the Supreme Court to ask that question. And I beg to differ. In, in an election petition, one of the most important things you are determining is who has won the elections. And you determine who has won the elections based on the constitutional provision that says that a person must obtain a certain number of votes that is more than half of the total valid vote cast. And so if you as a Supreme Court don't ask that question uh, uh, and then and then in your analysis 
you you then pick and choose what you want to do. It 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 it, it beats my imagination. Other than that, other than that, other than that, I think that there were a number of press principles. The good thing about this decision, then there's a very good thing about this decision. There were a number of principles that the Supreme Court referred to that makes it very difficult. You may not agree with those principles, but for you to impeach and challenge those principles of law, you've got to be able to marshal a lot to challenge them. Uh, it was well reasoned some of the things about uh, at what point in time, uh, if, uh, of course, the first thing was whether a course of action had been made, at what point uh, in time a person determines that you will not enter into the box and all those things. There were a number of principles that makes very sound reasoning when you read the Supreme Court, uh, other than the ultimate analysis of figures that the Supreme Court did. Okay, so so I I, I think I, I I would still maintain my the a position that I've held. Um, I think that if you look at the judgment, uh, we shouldn't create the impression that they did not give what the total valid votes are. So they, they actually clarified that that was in their judgment. Uh, and so if anybody wants to know what the total valid votes in the previous elections were, uh, those votes are available in the judgment. I also think that it's also problematic to invite the, the court to engage on, on a fishing expedition um, to, to then try and figure out what went wrong. Uh, uh, and I will still maintain that the NDC, as a party that wants to, Ghanaians, you know, a party that has occupied public office for a very long time uh, in our history, uh, a big party uh, going to court, it's incumbent on them to ensure that they send a very strong case. And I think in this case, uh, the petition, uh, and, and this week, Professor Jimabwadi also made that same observation, uh, that the case was really weak. And considering all the tensions that uh, such disputations could bring, um, it's always important for a party to make sure that it prepares uh, and gather as much information that could help the court. Um, and I don't think that the NDC did that. But I, I just want to invite Papa into it. Um, a lot has been yeah. said about what could have happened and what um, did happen. And I, I just want to get your reflections on them. You know, we, we've had discussions about this for a long time. I, I generally thought of the case the way finally the court kind of ruled. So in that sense, I think my you know, how I perceived the case aligns with the court. But for me, the most important things that this, the decision outlines for me is the policy of the court when it comes to election petitions. And I think for me, both in 2012, 2013, and now, the court is speaking the same language. It's reaffirming itself. The first thing is the presumption of regularity. And he says it is really, really strong. That when we, we have gone through an election in our context, 
um, we presume that is regular and you must come with sufficient evidence. So I think that's the first thing for me. The second thing for me is that the court seems to be saying that when you are coming to unseat the presumption of regularity, you, have, you must come in good conscience and in equity. So um, you must be conscious of political stability and recognizing that there's no um, error-free free elections, especially in our context. And also the fact that when you are reading the election, the electoral material, the record of the election, you must do so with the best efforts to decipher the intention of the voter and not to just come and invalidate on the basis of technicalities and error, technical errors. So I think this is the same kind of reasoning that informed the same kind of policy positions that informed the court in 20, 2012 and 2013. And I think if I sit this decision in you the... You mean in 2013 and 20... 2012, um, 2013. Um, I'm, am I... <laughs> yes, you mean the I mean, 2012 I, elections yeah, by the petition yeah, that was said in 2013? Precisely. Yeah. And I think the... Poly- the policy position of the court for me sits very well with me because it appears to sit in the material conditions of the Ghanaian people. That you are dealing with a population who, which is experiencing elections in this, or the election of leaders in this manner mm-hmm. for, um, uh, you know, we, we, which is not used to electing leaders in this manner. And that you must take that into cognizance, um, you know. So I think that for me is key. And I think the court, in terms of that, those policy positions, have gotten it right. This will not be the same over time. And I think issues that have been raised by Otin and Oliver, I think those are key issues. Those are very important issues that you know cannot be wished away as we do this kind of you know electoral democracy over and over and over the last point here is the last point i want to make is um the court signal and i think this is something oliver and i agreed in the last discussion on this thing the court signal that perhaps we are not using um, the high court enough when it comes to challenging administrative bodies. And so perhaps we should begin to test, you know, uh, Article 296 issues, uh, 23 296 issues much more through the high court than coming straight to the Supreme Court in this in this instance because when we give the high court the first bite and we test our theories there we ourselves will be better as activists uh, activist lawyers and so on in going higher you know to the to the higher bodies. i guess the and, 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 and interestingly interesting counterpoint to that would be that uh, what otino was saying uh, about if given that you can only send a presidential petition within a certain time frame uh, if you go to the high court and it is established that certain administrative errors were made, um, 
what other avenue do you have? The, the interesting to, thing will be if you go to that. the high court, and I'm assuming that, you know, as lawyers, if we are um, advising our clients in, you know, in good conscience with our professional uh, integrity intact, we, we will be able to clearly decide in this particular case which venue, which well, avenue is better. Where you will go. But, but yeah, but, exactly. But, 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 but let me say that it will be very interesting if you go to the high court. And in the high court's process, it becomes clear that the election was not won by anybody, and yet the time for petition has passed. That would be a matter already seized by the high court. So I want to believe that in that matter, just as constitutional issues are referred to the Supreme Court, in this case, this will become this will if we, we were to agree that that is a way to go then this will become a constitutional a, an election petition issue which is within the constitutional mandate jurisdiction of the supreme court special jurisdiction of the supreme mm. court and referred by the court itself to the to the high court but you've made two very interesting point one very simple thing in the case of the, uh, the Auditor General, when people have marshaled themselves that these are constitutional provisions or these are general administrative matters that must be addressed quickly by the courts, and they go to the courts, the courts do not take up the matter quickly to, 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 to resolve it. But you know, in the Domenovo case, I mm. have said, I have, mm. my position has been, we should make this case at, at Article 23, a 296 case first. That has been my position on this thing. Not to discount the constitutional issues, which I agree with, but, but I think so, as a strategy, so, so, that's no, how no. I have argued so, so, in addition so, so, to the, so, the, so, the, the street agitations. This, yeah. this is how I have perceived the strategy but, of the case. But Papa, the, the larger point I am making that whether it was an, an Article 23 or 296 matter, a matter was sent to courts, and the matter appeared to be time sensitive. If you were going to reject the matter, reject it quickly and let us know quickly what was it. So I'm just bringing up this point to, to just make it, it's not as if citizens ever have not availed of, of themselves of the other avenues. So it goes to the bigger point that the cost must be more sensitive to citizens' rights and constitutional rights, as Oliver uh, 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 said initially. The other point is- I agree. Your, uh, the, the other point is your presumption of regularity. And I totally agree with you on the presumption of regularity. That is precisely the reason why I think that because of the presumption of regularity, and for those who don't understand, I mean, for non-lawyers who will be listening to the podcast, it only means is that what it just simply in very simple terms means is that if a public body exercise a function, performs a function, we have to presume that they have done it in the right way. And that to say that they have not done it in the right way, we have to come to court with some evidence to show that they have not done it in the right way. In that case, we will be said to have rebutted the presumption 
and then called for more explanation from the public body. In this particular case, it is precisely of that principle of law that I think the Supreme Court should have by itself asked the Electoral Commission and the chair of the commission some serious questions. When you presume regularity and the person that you are, that, that presumption is made in favor, comes to court and say, I have made mistakes. It is not just one mistake. It is multiple mistakes. You just don't leave it at that point. The moment you, 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 the person said, I have made mistakes and there are multiple mistakes. Then there is something more regular about what the person did. I mean, my point there was only that the court now seems to be saying that to impeach the presumption, you have to come with sufficient evidence, not just some evidence. And I think that's my reading of what the court is saying. Can I just make the point? Can I just make the point that the very essence of the presumption the very essence, call me, let me just quickly make this one. The Otten, very Otten, essence... Otten, Otten, let okay. me let me host. Let me okay. do that. All right, okay. I, I defer to you. Because I, I think we if we are not careful, we'll be just going back and forth uh, over something that we have already mm. uh, exhausted. I, I, I really was hoping that we will be reflecting. Okay, okay. On, on, I on bigger issues. Mm. On on, on on the broader context and, and um Oliver you, we know that uh, uh, President Mahama gave a speech afterwards. Um, in many ways, that is that cannot be considered a concession. <clears throat> it can also be interpreted as an acceptance of the verdict. So if you are an NDC person, you feel that justice has not been served. Uh, and your leader has actually made that point uh, also very clear. You talked about winners and losers. Where should if the NDC uh, consider itself on that spectrum? So the I think one of the things that I like so much about that speech is the recognition ultimately that an election petition is not only a legal process, but it's as political as it gets. And that political takes that the political stakes must be managed. And I think that if there was any political moment and advantage to be taken of, I think Mahama milked the sort of disaffection people were having now for the Supreme Court and also for the Electoral Commission greatly to the NDC's advantage. And I think there was, there was a sense of urgency in that speech and also a, a call to the base that I think the NDC will ultimately be happy with. And I think if anything at all, when you think about in the scheme of things, if, there's, if, you were, if you were to think of it as, well, if people are not happy with the verdict, they might take to the streets or become violent. If there's anything that restored much more faith in the democratic process, I think in that speech, in that speech that's it. And I want to say this. When the decision was made, a lot of people have compared Muhammad's speech to Akufuado's speech. That Akufuado's call for respecting the verdict at the end of the 2013 election and all of that sort of projected him as a statesman in a sense. And, and, and in some way, people were expecting that Muhammad would strike the same tone 
and call for this. And as perhaps as the biggest indication of, of trying to call for faith in the democracy. But I, I don't necessarily think that coming and singing the praises of what the court has done is the only way in which you can engender faith in an electoral process. I think that the speech that he did really calmed a lot of nerves and gave a lot of people within the NDC a sense that at least somebody is echoing our frustrations and echoes it elegantly. You may disagree with the content and whatever it is. But ultimately, when he, died, when he did give this speech, I think a lot of people were able to move on and it's, it's sort of a coming to terms and getting some, some closure with the issue. And you see that sort of, it has sort of dissipated anger over the process and people have moved on because he's it's, it's allowed himself to be the channel for which people vent and, and echo out their frustration. And I think that in terms of the NDC politics generally and how the season of a political moment and, and claiming some political advantage of it, the speech does that uh, perfectly, in my opinion. And, and, and can, I, can, I, can I just ask you, and I agree with you, the speech was very a, a very sound speech, but can I, couldn't it have been even better if in that speech, having accepted, I mean, accepting is not the correct way, having acknowledged the decision and of having acknowledged that the decision was the final, final avenue, there was no more avenue, uh, uh, you call Nana, and say, well, this is the decision of the court. I don't agree with you. And in addition, do what he does. I think that that would also have added, added to, yeah. Um, and I mean, uh, at the end of the day, at some point, there will be winners and losers. In this particular, in the very narrow sense, he lost the case, and so, losing the case means losing the elections, yeah. not being granted the remedy that she was seeking in court. And so calling Anna to congratulate him on the basis of that narrow decision of the Supreme Court, but also still venting uh, and expressing the frustration of his followers in the way he did it will, yeah. will add to it. I, I, I think that... Yeah. You know, I think that ultimately politicians in circumstances like this want to seize the opportunity to be portrayed as the bigger person. And I, I did write on this on social media that one of the first things Mahama should do after this is to call Nanado and congratulate him. And I think it, it wouldn't have taken away from the ultimate frustrations he expressed uh, about the elections, but it would have been good for, for him to do that. Ultimately, he decided not to, but I don't think it takes away too much from the content of the speech and the, the structure of it necessarily but I agree that, I mean, it could have been, but, it could have, it, it's an opportunity to be the big person, I, which he did. I think Mahama is reading the NDC foot soldiers perfectly. Right. If you, if you see the, and we talked about this, you know, before, if you see the, 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 the acclamation, the joy of the NDC foot soldiers, when, 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 when December, January 6th happened, hmm? and you see, what just happened to the parliamentarians who uh, went ahead and <laughs> kind of passed, you know, voted for, pe for people that the NDC folks who just, you know, thought they shouldn't have voted for. Mahama read the move perfectly. And that calling Nanado at that time would have been seen as a flip-flop leader. And I think right. he was right, politically speaking, not, you know, kind of national or whatever, mm -hmm. to 
to create the kind to 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 uh, affirm the mood right. of the party and the foot soldiers. He was right yeah. not to do not to call a kufado because the party seems to be in a mood of resistance, some mm. kind of resist this group. Yeah, you know, and I think yeah. he needs to reinforce that. If you listen to Bessie Pratt and his, uh, uh, you know, upset or, uh, you know, frustration, mm-hmm. you know, when, when the parliamentarians w- went ahead to vote uh, for the MPP MPs, I mean, the, the, the ministers, you, you, can, you can tell the kind of discussion that's going on in the, in, the, in, the, uh, in the NDC in terms of strategy for the next four years. Yeah, but 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 yeah, and not to take anything away from what you've just said, leadership can also come across in a certain way, and people were looking up to him. And the guy wants power. You say it's leadership. (laughs) What is leadership? It's power. Come here. Uh, Let me let me come. (laughs) Yes. Just just a a quick point. Uh, I, I have a completely different take on the speech and mm. the way he, he, he's conducted himself, I think Mahama is in a peculiar position. So whereas in 2013, Ekufuado had not been president, uh, he was generally framed quite successfully by the NDC as unpresidential. Mm-hmm. I think that the bar for him was very high and so he really needed to make the speech that he made to be able to project that presidential outlook. And, and that, for me, I think is part of what helped him to eventually become president. Mohammed's position is different. So in that he has been president before, he really doesn't have a problem projecting this presidential outlook, as a lot of Ghanaians view. If anything he does, as and I, and I think anytime Muhammad thinks as a person who is holding the NDC flag or who is bearing the NDC flag, anytime he thinks that and he acts like that, it chips away his presidential outlook. And, and, and so whereas you can make a case that he really tapped into the grassroots of the NDC. And of course, you can tell from the speech that he was positioning himself for 2024 because he gives he gave this impression that, well, this is just a loss for now, but we should prepare for the bigger fight ahead. And so you are in no doubt that he's going to run again. But I think that for me, what was missing was this person who at one point was the commander-in-chief of the Ghana Armed Forces, a person who was the statesman that we all looked up to. And in in that sense, I thought he was very disappointing. And if he continues chipping away the kind of goodwill, the public image that he has built over the past in the name of peculiaristic partisan calculation, I think it might eventually work against him even going into 2024. Because remember, the people you really need to get on your side are not the party foot soldiers. They are the independent people. They are the so-called independent people. Independent people who are always looking, well, Ghana is a peaceful country. How do we maintain the peace? 
uh, who is more capable. And I think that in that sense, I really wouldn't characterize that speech as a good speech. Uh, and I, I and I, I was really disappointed, I must say. But, no, um, I, I, I take you. I take your point because I think you have been very expressive as well about sort of the projection or what the what Nanado's speech did for him, and and your what your expectations would be in this one. My my view though is so twofold. One, I think there would have been a lot more to lose if he had taken that post challenge to himself. It would have been seen a lot as conciliatory, but also like a dog which is you know defeated and accepting defeat. I don't think he would have really projected in, in one. It is one of the few times where I think his finger was on the pulse. And you talk about the independence going into 2024. You would agree that a lot of the independent voices are people who have been very frustrated with the Supreme Court and with the, with the, with the Electoral Commission in this elected, election petition. A lot of people did not like the fact that the Electoral Commission seemed to have been shielded from scrutiny. And so in a way, in voicing those frustrations as well, he was speaking to a distinct community. And, and, I, and I think, we, well, I mean, I think generally on this, perhaps we disagree on it, but I do think that on this one, he had his finger on the pulse. I, I, and I think, you know, Mahama could have listed all the problems with the verdict and still say, say something to the point that, but for the peace of this country, for our democracy. Because um, I, I seriously think that it is not as easy to delegitimize the Supreme Court verdict uh, the way we, we tend to think it is. Um, the, the, uh, the, the counter narrative has also been that people think that the NDC went to court and wasted everybody's time. And that is also quite a strong, a compelling perception. Unfortunately, as a country, we don't have the benefit of polling and all that to gauge the mood of the nation. But I, um, I really hope I really hope, and I, and I say this as a person who really likes uh, Mahama, I, I really hope that he knows what he's doing. But from where I sit, I think that it's, um, uh, it, it, was, it wasn't a good speech for him. Uh, and yeah. it, 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 it chipped away his presidential uh, outlook. One thing about leadership is also to shape and to mold your supporters thinking uh, you can't always be meeting um uh, what everybody wants but um do we have any final words to say um i think that the position was useful uh it set out a number of things that if we want to improve on our democracy and especially on electoral petitions we have to do. I think that one of the clearest things coming out of this petition is to go back to our court rules concerning election petitions and try to not tweak them, rework them to clarify different things. One of the things that I was particularly concerned about is the insistence of applying high court rules on pleadings and which then uh, uh, in their very nature prolongs a trial uh, and, and not defining the, this case well. And so uh, it, it's taught us, it, the, one of the lessons is to go back to our court rules 
way we work our court rules to make things very clear how election petitions are initiated and tried. Professor Jimabaji said one thing, he's expressed a disappointment that democracy have, has not really reflected in the kind of distributive justice that we want it to be, largely true, but uh, also politicking and, and, and settling issues through our political party structures. Is, uh, we've grown in that, and the election petition itself shows that we can still do that. And, 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 and it's going to be an interesting for next four years. Yeah, that's that. I know Oliver will be happy if I Oliver will not uh, scold me for in, in interrupting uh, his his intervention his final intervention. But I'm happy that in the UK tonight, the women and me, well-meaning people have defied the police and have gone on a public protestation um, in reaction to the death of is it Eva Sarah, the lady Sarah. who was killed yes. in yeah. yeah. I'm excited that I can see people on the mm -hmm. streets. Uh, in their masks. So kudos to protestations and peaceful assembly. <laughs> and then and it, it, I know, Papa, you are very passionate about this. Um, uh, maybe if you could just also add if it's something about uh, Myanmar, the protests who are being, uh, uh, you know. It's really, really unfortunate and really regretful, very shameful that the military seems to escalate. Um, the killing of their own citizens who they are supposed to protect from outsiders. Um, it's really, it's really unfortunate. So far, over 50 people have been killed just because they want a return to the votes that were cast on the 8th of November. Okay. And, and I think, yeah. On that note, Oliver, you can, you can. <laughs> no, I think, I think Papa's point segues nicely into something I wanted to say. Because I first wanted to pick up on something he had said in his earlier intervention, where he said the the need for the the Supreme Court to be mindful uh, that we are not used to electing leaders in a particular way, and the way he said it out, he seemed to agree that the, court, the Supreme Court was spot on on that. But I disagree a bit, and I'll come. I want to use my last words to sort of reflect on this. Um, you know, we oftentimes we make a big deal out of the fact that we are a young democracy. And when we use this, we've always used it only to affirm dictatorial powers and unconstitutional powers, as is the case of the contempt powers of the Supreme Court, in saying that because we are a young democracy, we have to be heavy-handed in order to ensure some sort of allegiance to us. But if there was a moment where this idea should have been present on the court's mind, this was in how it, it, it thought about this, the election. And, and this is because I always say that and this is what I, I generally have referred to as the democratic options theory, that in every situation, uh, political actors have a range of democratic options at their disposal. And in an election petition, the court is only one of those options. And so when people elect to go to the court, the court needs to be mindful and reflect on how do we continue to make the courtroom an attractive option for people to elect to go. But it is competing with all the other options. And one of those options I, I used, I was saying consistently, was the option to take to the streets and to continue to protest the election. And that the ABC could have elected to do. 
In this case, they chose the judicial option. And I don't think that it's necessarily a good thing for the court to continue to re-emphasize why people should rather contest at the ballot box and not see the court as an, an attractive option for them to evoke. If you continue to do that, then parties will then advise themselves that there's nothing really there in the court that is advantageous to us. And so let us evoke all the other options. And if the NDC decided that it was going to stay on the street, in as much as it was a valuable democratic option they could have exercised, it is much more potentially disruptive and could have made the country much more ungovernable. And I think the court should, have be, should be mindful of that in a way in which it reflects on the role of law in settling of, of electoral contestations uh, generally. So, so that's sort of my, my thoughts on that. Nelson, you are poised to respond. You are very poised to respond. <laughs> I want to hear what you have to say about that. I was going to uh, end the... the, the uh, on a very nice note, but what he has said has, has agitated. No, not at all. I think I, I think that um, I I am generally uh, satisfied with the Supreme Court. Um, um, I think they had the NDC. Um, they they gave them all the room that they needed to make their case. Uh, in the end, I think we all agree, despite all. Uh, you know, debates that the NDC could have made a better case. Um, and in that sense, um, when we then want to add any extra responsibility to the EC, then just as Oliver always says, we then need to ask ourselves whether uh, that extra power could not lead to any other excesses uh, in terms of how uh, people who have been entrusted with a public authority uh, exercise them, um, and 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 that then brings me to a point. I I think, and I said this uh, to some of my NDC friends uh, in 2013. You can always come out of a, a court verdict or Supreme Court verdict about the election, feeling different things. You know, for for an NDC person, this is this is probably not what they expected uh, for an MPP person this is great news and we saw the party the good thing about our election is that we have them every four years and there's always an opportunity a and I think that we need to again getting back to Oliver's point we need to be aware of the range of options that are available I think one important option which Papa actually highlighted uh, in our episode before the election is the option of vigilance. I mean, vigilance doesn't mean you should go and fight at the ballot box, but make sure that when you are adding up, um, and, and that is why we bring all these actors involved in, in, the, in the counting and collation process. Uh, and I think that that is one option that uh, various parties really need to think creatively the ways, whether it's about the way they train their polling agents, whether it's about the softwares and instruments and tools that they deploy, uh, and all those other things. And of course, the ECs, uh, how we also hold the EC accountable should be. But one of the things that, and just to conclude, that I'm worried about is, is the presidency. 
I think the president is coming out of this election. And if I can criticize the 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 verdict, it has it seems to have emboldened the president to then begin to act in ways that are detrimental to our democracy. And I cannot really anytime I think about the Auditor General who has just been kicked off his position, uh, this attempt to say that we are going to bring the Japa deal, as Otin said, and all the things that we are seeing, um, I just really hope that people will not come out of this verdict or even this whole election feeling emboldened to act in ways that are detrimental to others. In the end, it's all one Ghana. It's all one Ghana, and uh, let's let's keep talking about Ghana. Let's keep wishing Ghana well. And thanks to our, our witness for joining us. Call me, call me, call me. I, I know we are thanking listeners, but I can't, I can't, having said it, I can't but to ask you, in what way has the, the, the decision, in, in, in the way you are seeing it, in what way has it uh, emboldened the president? What, what aspect of it has emboldened the president? Thanks, thanks to our witness for, for joining us. Which witness is now listening, you mean? Uh, <laughs> you see, you are caught in the court, court language of court? witnesses and witnesses. <laughs> yeah, he's caught in there. So, this we, is, we are not recording. Is, so, now is, let's uh, come to it. He's circled so by lawyers. This is Otin trying to uh, 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 bully me with his law and all that. <laughs> I just want to understand you well. In what way is it a bold in the first time? Otin, there's a reason why I put it at the very last. <laughs> <laughs> because I knew if I had brought it no but off the record